Hello, and welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, October 14th, 2018, we're going to be continuing our series titled Knowing Truth, The Letters of John. In today's sermon, Being in the Word, Pastor Bob Wade will be teaching from 1 John chapter 2, verses 23 through 27. We hope you enjoy. In a world of disagreements, large and small, I don't believe that you exist. Go think whatever you want. Go ahead. How can a good and powerful God allow innocent people to suffer unspeakable tragedies? But then there's all these questions, you know, about ethics and moral issues as well. And I would say, well, they're crazy for not testing what they think they believe. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not real. It's as real as what you see. And, and I begin with the assumption that God is love. And love is love is love is love. I think that the orthodox, historic Christian tradition is this vast, diverse conversation that's been going on for thousands of years. You know, if you take a time and look at the life of Jesus, it's really hard not to be attracted to Jesus. You know, I mean, there's so many wonderful, winsome, beautiful things about him. You know, the way he treated those that were sick, the way he, he went out of his way to love those that were wounded or hurt, uh, to comfort families when they were down. I mean, there's just so many things about his life, feeding the hungry. I mean, it's an amazing thing. And yet, it's interesting that there are so many that are not attracted to him. You ever wonder why? Real, the answer that really comes down to how you answer the third test of faith that is in John's letters. You see, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John really have three tests of faith. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is the passages that we've been working through. Those three tests of faith, there's got the moral test. The moral test is basically, will I obey what God tells me to do? That's what the moral test is. Then you have the, the relational test, and the relational test is, do I love those that are other believers? In other words, do I love the brothers and sisters of the faith that are around me? And then there's the doctrinal test. The doctrinal test is, who do I say that Jesus is? Who do I believe him to be? Thomas actually ended his message last week with that very question. Who do we say that Jesus is? Because that is the issue here in 1 John chapter 2. Now let's stop and before we jump into this too much, I want to go back to the very last verse that Thomas ended on last week, verse 22, because he's going to mention that. And read this together with me, will you? Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So what he mentions here, John mentions here that anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ is the Antichrist. Well, that word Christ is the same word that we get the word Messiah from. That's what it means. It says here that he is an Antichrist. He's against, anti is against, and Christ again is Messiah. So the question would be is, why would someone be against Jesus? Why would they struggle with Jesus being the Messiah? Well, the answer is, that according to Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, that if Jesus is the Messiah, that the only response that you and I should have is to fall to our knees and worship him completely, that he is the Lord of all. Not a good teacher, not somebody that's, you know, has some really cool religious thoughts and, you know, not someone that was like a, a figure mark of history, but he is the Lord of all. And that's the dividing line between people. 
Lots and lots of people out there in the world, you know, you can be in your workspace and someone can say something about God and everybody has an opinion about God until you bring Jesus into it. Jesus is the dividing line. You'll see why. Now, the passage we're gonna look at, verses 23 through 27 here, um, is an important passage. And the reason why I want to tell you that we're, we're I want to tell you something about that is this, as a church, if you're new to us, we are a Bible teaching church, and what that means is we're going to go through the scriptures verse by verse. Our task is not to stand in front of you and say, "Hey, this week we're talking about how to have a happy home." That's a great idea of man, and we can do that in other kind of Bible studies in other places. But our task as a church is to stop and make sure that we faithfully go through the scriptures verse by verse and see what God has to say, not what Bob has to say. Even though I think Bob has to say probably some good things, but okay. First John chapter two, look at verses 23 through 27. Verse 23 says, no one who denies the son has the father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. In other words, that's his motive from writing right at the bat. He wants you to understand that there are people that are out there trying to deceive the church. And his goal is to write and sort of clarify things, bring them back to sinner so that we don't get deceived. Keep going, verse 27. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as this anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, that's a mouthful, I gotta tell you right off the bat, okay? John is very instructional here. In fact, the text here is gonna give us six truths. Now, think about what that's saying here. That's in five verses, it's going to teach us six things. That's a little bit like taking a fire hose out and asking you to come up and take a drink off of it, okay? Now, we're gonna try to break it down as much as we possibly can as we go verse by verse through this, but just remember here that there is a theme. Now, the theme here that you gotta remember through all of this is, is that you need to be personally right about Jesus. And if you are, your only place you're gonna ever find that is being in God's word. And God's gonna help you out because he's gonna put his Holy Spirit, the one that anoints you, inside of you to help you to do all that, okay? So let's jump into this together. Look at the first one here. The first truth the passage is gonna teach us here in verse 23 is if we're wrong about Jesus, we're also wrong about God the Father. Again, look at verse 23 again. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Could it get any clearer than that? No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. It's an incredibly clear statement. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Obviously, if you're wrong about Jesus, you're gonna be wrong about the Father as well. Now the question here though is, what would they be denying? I mean, they, they can't actually be denying that he actually came because, you know, the truth is Jesus is a historical figure. I mean, you can go back in, in history and find out that he actually came and, uh, you know, there's, there were certainly historians at that time that weren't even believers that wrote about that. Flavius Josephus wrote about, about Jesus coming. So, you know, there were, 
there was plenty of proof here that he actually came. No, what they're denying is what the first verse that we actually read back in verse 22 that Thomas ended on. They're denying here that he is the Messiah, the Christ. See, being the Messiah is a really big deal. The word Messiah means anointed ones. Now, there were others that were anointed. In fact, if you go back into the Old Testament, you'll see that they had a whole group of people called the priests. They were anointed. In fact, they would stop and they would have these ceremonies. Back then, they would sort of take the priest and they would sort of show that in some ceremonial form that this person was being used by God to sort of be a mediator between God and people. And then you had the prophets. The prophets would also go through some kind of a ceremony like that as well. And you had the kings. And much like we just had a royal wedding, you know, a few months back and they go through that whole coronation process and the whole bit, the kings also went through this coronation process to to show that they were being used by God and God was going to use them to lead the country. There's only one problem. You cannot go through the scriptures and find one priest or one prophet or one king that wasn't a sinner. That meant that every single mediator was imperfect. Now that's a problem. Because the mediator God needs has got to be perfect. That's what 2 Corinthians or 2 Peter chapter 5, verse 21 tells us that God's mediator is going to be without sin. A perfect mediator in this case could only be fully God to represent God, and yet he had to be born in the flesh to represent man. Now we also know that the Messiah was going to come from the lineage of King David. So he's going to be born in David's family tree. That doesn't sound like it's a terribly hard thing, right? Except for the fact that David had seven wives. And I don't even know how many concubines he might have had, you know, even beyond that whole thing. So, I mean, his family tree, it didn't just like fork off. It split and like went crazy, you know, all over the place. So how in the world are you going to figure out then who is this one? I mean, what's going to be the sign? What is going to set one of them apart from all the rest to prove that this would be the Messiah coming from his lineage? Well, keep your finger here in 1 John and go over to Isaiah, back in the Old Testament. Go to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. Because the Lord here is going to give us the sign of who it is here. Verse 7, excuse me, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Oh, that's pretty easy, Right? The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Now, let me tell you why that is a really big deal. Because it's not humanly possible for a virgin to give birth to a child without a male. And yet it happens here. what's, What's going on? This is God at work. God provides the signs. This is something that he will do all the way through the scriptures in the Old Testament. And there's example after example of it. For example, in Genesis chapter 22, God says to Abraham, says to Abraham, his, his servant there, he says, take your son Isaac and I want you to go up onto this mountain, Mount Moriah. A couple of thousand years later, that mountain would happen to be in the middle of Jerusalem and it would be called Golgotha. He told him, take your son up on top of this mountain there and when you go there, here's what I want you to do. I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. 
So they go. He gets ready to offer him as a sacrifice. God stops him. Okay? And then Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. You know what Israel learned during that time? They learned the concept of substitutionary atonement. That someone else would die in their place. A son would die in their place. That God himself would provide that that sacrifice. There was another example that took place in Exodus chapter 12. The children of Israel who had been enslaved in Egypt for a while and in the process of getting Pharaoh to, to let them go here, God decides he's gonna teach another lesson to Israel that hopefully they will pass on from generation to generation so that people will start to get this. He says, I'm gonna have the angel of death pass through, but I want you to understand how I'm gonna provide for you, how I'm gonna provide for your salvation. And so he says, you go, you find a lamb without blemish. That was supposed to be the sign to them that it would be like without sin. Find this lamb that is without blemish and you kill the lamb and you take the blood and you put it across the doorway and the angel of death will pass by and you will be saved. And they did. They were saved by the blood of the lamb. Remember in the New Testament in the Gospel of John, first chapter, verse 29, John the Baptist is actually in the waters of the Jordan River. He's baptizing people. And he sees Jesus and his disciples walking by, okay? And he looks up from the water and he stops and he says, oh, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Messiah. There's so much more. I mean, Daniel chapter seven foretells of the coming of the Son of Man, Psalm 2 talks about the Lord's anointed was going to come and he's going to be called God's son. Isaiah will even take it a step further, more about, about Jesus here and about the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 9, if you're in Isaiah 7, just turn over one page. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, he says, for, us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, I want to be really clear here. God the Father would never call any other being God unless he's God. The sign of the Messiah is going to come. God's sacrifice is going to come. They saw it everywhere. They had multiple examples of it happening over and over again. And this Messiah will be everything that they have ever wanted. And he will do everything that they ever needed. Go over to the right to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. Listen to what this Messiah will do. And tell me this does not sound like what Jesus does. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. A transgression is when you knew it was wrong and you did it anyway. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and his wounds, and with his wounds we are healed. Go over to verse 6. 
or excuse me, read verse six here. And all we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is what the Messiah would do. He would come to lay down his life. And so as Jesus is being recognized in the churches there in Asia Minor that he is the Messiah, you had people stop and going, whoa, wait a minute. I like this Jesus guy. He does cool stuff, but are you telling me he's the Messiah? And so John will write and he will say, verse 23, back in John chapter two, he'll say, no one who denies the son, denies what? That he's the Messiah. No one who denies the son has the father. That tells me then that if someone comes along and says, well, you know, I think Jesus is cool. I, I, I kind of, I got a good vibe with him. I, I like him. He's cool. And I think the idea of God is, is really cool. But I don't know about the whole Messiah thing. Well, that's a problem because the passage here tells us that leads to spiritual disaster because if you don't have the son, you don't have the father. Jesus told us the two go together. Go over to the left to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 14. John chapter 14, starting with verse six. Jesus said, he's talking to the disciples here, he said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd have known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Boy, that's a heavy statement. Verse eight. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? The two go together. To trust in Christ is to add not only a relationship with him, but is a relationship with the Father. Now, keep going, because the second truth comes up in verse 24, and that is the importance of being in the word. Look at the first part of verse 24. He says, and let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. Well, what had they heard from the beginning? Well, what they'd heard from the beginning was the teaching of the apostles. The gospel stories. The things that, that Jesus had talked about. The New Testament, what we would think of Today. You know, Ephesians chapter two, verse 20 tells us that that is the foundation of the church. That is what the church is supposed to be about. In fact, if you walk into a Christian church, any place, you know, a New Testament church, you're gonna find that the vast majority of the teaching in the church is gonna be in the New Testament. Now, that doesn't mean that the Old Testament is not important. And the Old Testament is a, is a wonderful, incredible resource. It gives great pictures of what God is doing. And it always goes and points back to Jesus, but the New Testament church matters, or excuse me, the New Testament itself matters because it's the story of what Jesus said and what Jesus did. That is the main task of the church. It's the main task of this church is to center in and focus on what the Testament says. So it's all about Jesus then. It's all about Jesus now. The reason why is because the, the apostles, they had heard everything about about Jesus' teaching. They walked with Jesus for three years. 
Whatever Jesus had talked about, they had heard and seen. They'd seen the miracles. They saw him heal the lame. They saw him raise the dead. They saw him feed the hungry. They saw him take a couple of fish and a loaf of bread and feed thousands of people. I mean, miracles that they couldn't deny. They saw him stop and, and the huge storm would be out on the Sea of Galilee that you know, just impossible to control any of it at all. And they all thought they were going to die and yet Jesus would just go, be still, and it stopped. How do you have power over nature like that? They'd seen him personally risen from the dead. They had been with Jesus. You know, Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 45 tell us that Jesus stopped with them and he sort of explained all the scriptures to them. It says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He took all of the Old Testament, he sat down with them and he says, I want you to see something. All of this stuff in the Old Testament, it points to me. So the teaching of the apostles was focused completely on Jesus, on who he is. The point is, the apostles, or excuse me, the gospels here and the teaching of the apostles here would not be something that people could, you know, get from just like some weird philosophy and thought. The Gnostics here that were attacking the church, this group of, you know, Greek philosophers, we're saying, you're not going to get anything out of that. What you knew is you embrace this idea of who God is, and then you go out someplace and discover some deep truth. That's how you're going to know. So these people set off on all these, you know, philosophical journeys and trying to figure out logic and studying the Kabbalah and every other possible thing you could, you could possibly think of to give them you know, th this, this knowledge about who God is. But what John is saying here is the only way you're going to know about Jesus and the true gospel is from what has been written long ago, what you've heard from the beginning. The witness of Jesus that was written down by the men who saw the risen Savior can't learn the gospel by mysticism. You're not going to get the gospel by logic. You're not going to get it by philosophy. You learn the gospel according to verse 24 by what you have heard from the beginning, the teaching of the apostles, God's word. That's why it becomes the mission of the church, to do the same. Now the third truth the third truth here is in the second part of verse 24, and that is the gospel invites us to a personal relationship with God the Father through Jesus the Son. Look at verse 24 again. He says, and let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you, and what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. That's pretty cool. You could have a relationship with God the Father through Jesus the Son. You know what's interesting is this is where so many people outside of the faith get Christianity all wrong. So many people will sit down and say, well, you know, I think Christianity, like all religions, is just a system of do's and don'ts. It's all about rules. The gospel is not a set of rules that you agree to. The gospel is about a personal relationship with a living God through faith in Jesus. That's what it's about. John here wants to be really clear and tell us 
that the Father and the Son, they come together. There were so many people at this time that, again, held a high view of God. But they didn't know him because they didn't know the Son. Jesus himself will even say that. John chapter 17 Verse 13 says this, this is eternal life that, you, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John chapter 14, verse six, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Fundamentally, this is one of the most important truths that you can know. That there is no relationship with the Father without a relationship with the Son. Now it's also important to know here that if you've not personally trusted in Jesus Christ to forgive your sins, to give you eternal life, then you don't have a relationship with God because you don't understand the gospel. Want a perfect example? The primary writer of the New Testament is a guy named Paul. Before he became a believer in Jesus Christ, he was a devout Jew. There could not be a more devout Jew than this guy. He was a Pharisee. He was 100% committed to keeping every law, every rule, every ritual, everything completely. But he didn't have eternal life. He was lost because he didn't understand the gospel. and He didn't understand it until Galatians 1 tells us that Jesus revealed himself to him and he believed. Christianity it's about a relationship. It's not about religion. It's not about us working ourselves to heaven or figuring out how to get to heaven. It's about trusting in the one that rules all things. Will he take care of us? It's predicated on relationship. Now there's a fourth truth and that is that gospel gives us God's promise of eternal life. Verse 25, and this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. That's a great promise. Do you realize that in John's writing, whether it's the Gospel of John or whether it's 1 John, that, that idea of eternal life comes up over and over again. For example, in John chapter 14, Jesus is with his disciples and he's talking about him, them going away and they're a little bit afraid. And so he says, I'm gonna go and prepare a place for you that where I go, there you may become also. Because they were, they were scared. Or when he's hanging on the cross, as he's dying there on the cross, one of the criminals that's to his one side says to him, look, if you're really God, why don't you take yourself off the cross? And remember, the other criminal stops and says, look, stop. We deserve to be here. He doesn't. He says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, take me with you. Remember Jesus' response, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's that great picture of What's going to happen in that eternal life? And then the promise here, the promise of eternal life. Apart from the gospel, you cannot get this. Religion would say, look, do the right things, keep all the rules, you know, do all of stuff like that, and then if you can do it without being, you know, a real jerk and, you know, keep from sinning, you might get into heaven. That's not good news. The good news is that Romans 10, 13 tells us that Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's good news. Now there's a fifth truth. 
I told you this is a little bit like a, <laughs> a fire hose here. There's a fifth truth here. It comes in verse 26 is, and that is that Satan relentlessly tries to alter the gospel. Look what he says in verse 26. And I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. You know, there have always been people that have tried to deceive believers. From the very beginning, I mean, Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, he says, but evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worth, deceiving and being deceived. In this case, the Gnostics were coming around and they were sort of altering the gospel message. They were saying, look, you don't have to do anything special. Nothing has to change in your life. You just need to believe in Jesus, but then you can live any way you want to. There are no rules whatsoever because none of it really matters. That's not true. Christianity is based upon the fact that when Jesus comes into your life supernaturally, he does a change inside of you. He creates something new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says the old passes away and the new comes. Now he gives me a heart for the things that, that he has a heart for. I begin to love people that maybe I never even knew before. I begin to want to be with God's people. So all of a sudden I show up at church when never, I never wanted to go to church and now I want to be there. Now I start seeing people in needs that I never, never saw before. Now I start feeling bad when I've done something wrong and I realize that the Holy Spirit inside of me is telling me you shouldn't have done that. That's a change that takes place inside of me. Not on the outside. In this case, they were saying you can live any way you want to, but since the beginning, you know, Satan has been completely opposed to God's truth, God's word, and especially the gospel. Repeatedly, Satan has raised up false teachers in attempts to deceive God's people. They'll come and they'll knock on your door and they'll tell you, you know, you need to do this and you need to do this. Let me encourage you. I'll make this really simple for you. Jesus plus anything is a cult. That's an easy way for you to remember this. You do not have to be baptized to be saved. You are baptized because in obedience to the Lord, he asks you to do it. You need Jesus. In Acts chapter 20, the apostle Paul warned the Ephesian elders, he says, from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And so one of the major themes in the entire New Testament is, is especially here in John's epistle, is that God's people would learn some discernment so that we can avoid spiritual deception in our lives. The only way we're gonna do that is by being in God's word. Now there's a sixth truth, the final truth here, and that is we're commanded to abide in the spirit. Verse 27, let me read that to you. It says, but the anointing that you receive, that's the Holy Spirit that you receive when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. Now, there were people here that at that point had left the church because of the heretical teaching, and so John is encouraging those that are still there that God has put his Holy Spirit inside of them, that he would abide with them and teach them. That was meant to be an encouragement, but he's also warning them that, that they had a part in this whole thing, not in their salvation, but they were supposed to have a part of how they lived their life. Now, I gotta tell you something. Spiritually speaking, this is actually one of the coolest truths there is that when you made that decision and you prayed that prayer, for me, I was 14, 
and I prayed a prayer and I asked Christ to come into my life. You know, at that moment, he forgave me, just like that. I asked him to forgive me, he forgave me. But here's what he did. He didn't leave me alone. He put his Holy Spirit inside of me to help me, to guide me, to teach me, to give me discernment so that when I hear something, I would go, um, that doesn't sound right to me. Or that, you know what, my spirit resonates with that. That's right, I get it. But then John here is also encouraging us to abide in the spirit, to do our part. What does that mean, abide? That word here is used five times in the passage. It means to have a a warm uh, fellowship, a closeness with someone. So here's the question. How do you have a warm closeness with God? Is that even possible? It starts with belief. It's added to by spending some time in prayer where in prayer, God and I are communicating back and forth and I'm pouring out my heart to him. It keeps going and growing when I stop and I take an opportunity to listen to what God has to say by opening up his word and hearing him speak to me through the word. It takes a step even further when I come and I gather together as a bunch of people and we put songs on the board and we sing of God's glory and his praises together and we praise him. It takes even more when we begin to trust in him. When we begin to live in obedience. Spiritually, if you've responded to the gospel, God has implanted his Holy Spirit inside of you to help you. He's asking you to do your part. So again, here's the truths I want to make sure you catch. We need to be sure that we're right about Jesus. We need to be in the word. But we can trust the fact that God has put his spirit inside of us to direct us. Would you pray with me? Appreciate it just for one second. If you'd stop for a second and focus in on you for a minute. You know, who we believe Jesus is is that most important truth that really decides where we spend forever. Let me encourage you, are you you sure you know who Christ is? Do you know that he is the Messiah? The long ago promised one that would come and give his life, shed his blood as the Lamb of God. Do you know that in beginning a relationship with him that you get a relationship with God the Father and that he'll put his spirit inside of you to guide you? That you could begin that relationship immediately. I'm gonna pray a simple prayer and I'll pray it out loud and I'd encourage you that if you wanna begin that relationship, you can do it right where you're at. You can pray after me silently. Dear God, Would you please forgive me? I want to know you. I want you to live in my heart. I want you to take control of me. I ask you to be my Savior and my Lord.
Let me ask you a question. No one is looking around. But if you prayed that prayer, would you just do me a favor so we could pray for you? Would you slip your hand up so we could just know, thank you. Thank you. God bless you. God bless you. I want you to know something. There's going to be a group of people that will be up here in the front right afterwards. They see it as their ministry to stop and pray with you. They'd love to pray that you start your new life spiritually on the right foot. Father, thank you for those that would confess as those that did in Asia Minor in the churches that Paul and John wrote to that you're the Lord, you're the Messiah, the Savior. Father, I pray that it would be true and real in their lives and you'd bless them for it, Lord. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Stay close to God. Talk to him. Stay in his word so he can speak to you so that you'll not be deceived. God bless you all.